you're affected by anything you hear on this podcast, get in touch via manblues at gmx.com or at manbluesuk on Twitter. We're not qualified to help, but we can listen. Please don't suffer in silence. I'm Leon Deggs, and you're listening to Man Blues. In this episode, we're discussing fatherhood. So, fatherhood, fatherhood, fatherhood. That moment when you find out, when she tells you that she's pregnant, there's all manner of things run through your brain, and there's no stopping any single one of them. They are perfectly valid thoughts, chaps. They are perfectly valid fears, and they are perfectly valid reasons to be a little bit apprehensive and cautious, gentlemen. The thing is, there's myriad books out there for about parenting and about how to avoid pitfalls and how to deal with an unruly child and how to do the best kind of upbringing for your child. But I've always maintained a book cannot describe every single human being. So there's definitely no way any book could describe how my wife and I will yield an offspring. Basically, the books just cannot describe this sort of stuff. So, my wife being very methodical and very insistent upon knowing everything, she bought a load of books on how to get through pregnancy. And also she already had a a little bit of study on how to raise children because she'd done some psychology and sociology when she was younger. And it made for an interesting time. But I'll tell you this, the most important thing my wife and I ever agreed on was that no matter what the situation, if one of us was angry with the child, the other person had to back them up. We were not going to be standing for anything of like, oh, well, maybe we should see this and maybe we should see that, because no, we need to have each other's back. We agreed that from day one, and that has worked really, really well. But what we will do afterwards is I will then speak to her or she will then speak to me and say, was it really necessary? What was that all about? Whatever. But in that moment, you've got that level of support, and that was absolutely key. But the cliches, I'm sure you'll know them all, where people, the, the, the biggest cliche for me about a pregnancy um, is that once that child is born, it, your life is irrevocably changed. Now, it's irrevocably changed for one of two reasons. One of the reasons is, is that from that point on, you were a father. Whatever happens later in your life, you've had that experience, that's been a thing that you, you were a father, you are a father, you have a child somewhere out there in the world. The other thing that changes is your outlook on life. One of my friends told me this very, very funny story where he was explaining about the fact that now as a father, he's very protective of his child, but he was out one day pushing the pram along a little bridle path and then a horse and rider came the other way. He told us the first thought that walked across his brain was, how the hell do I take out a horse if it starts attacking my child? The rest of my friends are all falling about laughing and thinking this is hilarious, but I looked him in the eye and I just thought, yeah, what would you do? Because that is not something that you would ever consider have been a problem or have been an issue you might need to address, that at some point you might need to attack an animal that's attacking you. Crazy thoughts, but that's how your life changes forever because suddenly you are not the thing at the forefront of your brain, your child is. Whether you're a good father or a bad father, whether you're a good parent or not, that's all irrelevant because your thoughts on that matter change. And they change quite drastically. And, you know, nobody really explains to you about the worry, 
the anguish, the nerves that you face and you feel as you know going through the pregnancy and also during the child's life. I mean, I could tell you stories. So if I tell you the story about the birth, so the story goes is that uh, my wife needed a C-section and it was getting along in the day, so they drugged her up and they laid her out on this bed and she had a shield put over her so she couldn't see what was going on because uh, she was kind of awake but not awake sort of thing. She was rambling. And, oh, it was mental. Anywho, so there was lots of pushing and shoving and dragging and pulling and whatever. And eventually they wrapped the baby up and they put him in my arms. Now I'm left-handed and they put him in my left arm, which meant I was pretty much useless because that's the doing arm for left-handed people. So I was like, right, okay, so that's stuck. I was even afraid to take my right hand and move the blanket a little bit so I could see his face better. And I'm just lying there with this, and I'm kind of going, Ugh, you've immobilized me by putting the baby in the wrong arm. And I would not, I didn't have the strength of character as a, as a brand new parent to shift the baby into the different arm. I just had no idea. So I did the only thing I could do. Apparently I rambled. I spoke at the baby for ages while we were finishing sewing up my wife and talking about various bits and pieces and doing all the other bits. I hadn't even introduced him to her yet. Um, I didn't know what sex the baby was um, because they'd written it down on a whiteboard across the room. But by this point, my eyes were... It was a long day. I was really tired. My glasses were not focused. My eyes were not focused. I couldn't even see what sex the baby was. Uh, I had no idea, but I'm just sitting there next to my wife. I'm supposed to be, you know, comforting her. And I'm just staring into this baby's eyes and blabbering on about how he's going to be playing for England football team and you name it, all the stuff that goes into it. But she was not in the room. She was really not there. So when the baby was cut from her and and taken over to the scales on the other side where they're doing all the checks, you know, the toes and the fingers and everything to make sure the baby can breathe and what have you, the baby made a noise. Its first noise is it takes its first breath of air and the noise went something like this. Right? That's a close approximation of the noise I remember him making. My wife, who was in the room but not in the room, and she was off her face and whatever it was they gave her, she turned to me and she said, Oh, it sounds cute. Without even thinking, I said, It sounds like an alien. And then, of course, the staff in the operating theatre, in the delivery suite, they were falling about the place laughing because I hadn't even realised that I'd said that out loud. I thought... <laughs> I thought it I thought it was just in my brain but no I managed to let it slip over my lips. But yeah, it was it was an insane noise. And for her to just lie there off her face and just go, Yeah, it sounds cute. No. It sounded awful. So anyway, the weirdest thing for me, and and I do I do mean this on the on the actual day of the birth, the weirdest thing for me was you get nine months to get used to your wife or girlfriend getting bigger and bigger and bigger as the pregnancy comes along. And then on that day when the baby pops out, suddenly She's back to his side and you kind of go, where's the rest of you? They wheeled her out of the delivery suite and as they were bringing her up the corridor to me, I was like, where's the rest of my wife? Freaky. But obviously, this was back in the day. This was this was a long time ago. So uh, someone's like, this was back in 2004. And what they did at the time was if you had a C-section, you stayed in hospital for a week. So basically, after this really long day, we, we, arrived, in, uh, we arrived at the maternity suite at four in the morning and I was sent home at about 7pm, 8pm that day. So it was a really long day. Drove home, collapsed, fell asleep. Great. The next day I woke up and I came in for the visiting hours. And as I walked in, uh, my son was there in a little kind of uh, see-through crib. My wife's looking really well. Um, she looked, obviously she was tired, but she looked well. You know, she was recovering from the operation. You know, having a C-section is quite an invasive piece of surgery. So she's recovering. So the nurse walks up to me and she says, um, talking to my wife whilst looking at me saying, has he ever had any experience with nappies? 
And I just went, no, I haven't. I've never done them before. She goes, okay, great, get on with it. So I don't know what she thought she heard, but I didn't say, yes, I'm okay with nappies. I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I was like, well, what the, they don't come with instructions when they're already on the baby. So I figured out how to do this. So I'm ripping the sides down, getting the Velcro down. And then I pulled down the front of the nappy. I was told by the nurse it needed changed. So I pulled down the front of the nappy and there's my boy in all his glory staring at me. And then suddenly his penis lifts and raises and starts pointing towards the ceiling. And I'm thinking, oh, that's interesting. What's that? Is that because he's you know, exposed to fresh air or whatever? And then he started to urinate. So, of course, because of the position of his penis and the way in which he was urinating, he managed to pee into his own ear. So, that was an interesting foray into my first ever nappy change, which was kind of like, I didn't realise you had to do it quickly. I didn't realise there's no point in my brain thought, oh, quick, put the nappy back over it and let the pee be caught in the nappy. I was just like, why is he weeing in his own ear? And the nurse walked past and she's chuckling at me and going, what am I doing wrong? She goes, well, and then she says to me, sometimes when the penis gets exposed to fresh air, if they need to go, they go. Great. Didn't want to tell me that beforehand. But the scariest thing was, my wife was in hospital, I think for most of the, like maybe six of the seven days she was there. So every day I was going in and visiting and making sure she was okay. And she was trying to breastfeed and latch on and you name it. And the interesting thing with it was, we had the baby in the car seat. We had the car seat, you know, so we're carrying the baby out with us into the car, put the car seat in the car drive home by the time we got home the baby was asleep in the car seat so we put the car seat in one of the armchairs in the house and then we both sat down on the sofa looking at the car seat with the baby in it and sort of just had a bit of a moment where we had a bit of a cuddle and whatever kind of like you know we've done it now this is it the next bit begins we both just looked over at the car seat and just thought what the hell do we do now what do we do now you can read all the books you want we haven't got a clue so after we'd had this moment where we were thought, my goodness, what the hell do we do? My wife got up and went into the kitchen and it was then that she spotted this rotted pineapple standing on the side. And so the story with the pineapple is my wife was nervous about, she was, she was nervous about delivering. She was nervous about going into labor. She was trying to, she was reading all these different things about how to induce the labor, you know, in a natural way. There were several suggestions. Things were like, um, have a spicy curry that can bring it on. I forget what the others were, but one of them was definitely have a spicy curry and the other one was have fresh pineapple. So on the Friday, she went out and she bought a fresh pineapple and put it in the kitchen. And on from the from then we had all of the Saturday day, whatever, then fine. We went to bed on the Saturday night and it was through from the Saturday night to the Sunday morning that we were in the maternity suite. So within 24 hours of her buying this pineapple, we were in the hospital trying to give birth. So we still believed that that was the reason why it happened. But what then continued after that was, as I said, she'd had the C-section. She'd been in hospital for weeks. So I'd been coming home after the visitation and I'd been looking at, you know, basically just sorting myself out in terms of, you know, getting a bit of food, getting a bit of this, getting a bit of the other. And I hadn't noticed this pineapple on the side. And then I'd go to bed, wake up the next morning, go to work, come home, go visit her in hospital, repeat, right? So by the time she comes home out of hospital seven days later... Uh, you know, coming home on a Friday afternoon or whatever it was, and she sees this pineapple that is almost nearly melting into the side on the kitchen or on the kitchen worktop. Uh, because I'd just forgotten about it, just left it there, and I hadn't even noticed all the fruit flies floating around. And she was really worried, and all of a sudden she had this proper moment of, what happens if our baby gets bitten by these flies, what happens if our baby swallows these flies? And I was like, 
pragmatic. Just throw that in a carrier bag, throw the carrier bag in the garden, job done, the fruit finds will die because there's no fruit to eat. Done. But that was an example of how your life now changes forever. So, one of the toughest times for me was when she wanted to take the baby with her to see her family. And of course, that's perfectly justified. She wanted to take the baby with her over to Germany. We sorted again paperwork and passports and all the rest of it. Got all the paperwork done. So after five months of this proper, kind of full-on bright lights going on in your life, you know, and everything settling down, suddenly the next day she was gone. And, you know, for a, for a few days, I genuinely wandered around the house aimless. I had no idea what to do because suddenly this huge thing had been taken out of my life and I had no idea what was going on. And I found that really difficult. But then there was something else that was kind of a bit more prolonged that we weren't really aware of. We'd noticed when he was younger that he was, sometimes he would struggle to sleep a little bit, sometimes he would struggle to breathe, and we didn't really think much of it. And as the years wore on, sort of, you know, we, we started thinking, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of got this permanent cold. He's, he's always streaming, snotty nose, whatever, but never seemed to be affecting his eyes or his hearing, but it was just kind of like, all the time. And some nights when it was particularly bad, he would really struggle to fall asleep and, we just have no idea what it was. But the problem is, if you go to the paediatrician, for instance, and you try to tell them that you think there's something wrong, all the paediatrician sees is a worried parent. And this was actually corroborated for me because I, I through part run, I met someone who was actually a paediatrician and he said, oh, this mother came in and the baby was running around the room all bright and jolly and she's trying to tell me the baby's not being well. And I'm going, well, look at your daughter, she's flying around the room. And I had to stop him and say, yeah, but you don't know what was happening 24 hours before that because that's how kids work. One day they can be running around absolutely fine like there's nothing wrong because they're excited about being somewhere different. But he didn't understand that. He was just like, well, she's worrying about nothing, isn't she? No, she's not. So in the case of my son, there was a suspicion he might have allergies. There was a suspicion it might be environmental. So, you know, essentially that's the paediatrician saying, your house is dirty, give it a clean. So we, you know, top to bottom, whatever, it made no difference. But then what I noticed over time, because as I say, the kind of work I do, I'm focused on problems and I try to solve them with logic. I noticed over time that it didn't matter where we were, he had that problem all year round. So it wasn't environmental. So then I went in, because my wife had been in a few times to the paediatrician and basically said, look, you know, this still got this problem and he just, he's a worried mother. And then I went in and I said, look, here he is, he's struggling to breathe, and it's not environmental, and I'll tell you for why. And I said, because in January, we were in Germany, and he had this problem, and they gave him an antibiotic to fix it, and he didn't fix it, he still struggled. Then in April, we went to Tunisia, and he was still struggling, even in the African heat. Then we come home, and he goes back to Germany in the August, and all through the times in between, he's got these problems with his nose, and then we come to September, where he's back at home, and the weather's changing, I said, there is something clearly wrong because this is all year round and it's not getting better. This is not environmental. There is something wrong with him. So the paediatrician just looked at me and went, fine, I'll give you an ENT referral in nose throat. Great. Thank you very much. So we wait for the appointment. My wife takes him to the ENT appointment and the ENT specialist takes one look down his throat and says, Christ, how's he breathing with those lumps in his throat? It turns out that his adenoids and his tonsils were so enlarged that the gap for him to breathe was tiny. And when he had a cold, it was even worse because everything just shut down. So he had the operation. He was 
He was very poorly um, and he was off school for a week and that was a really tough week because he was incredibly um, sensitive to, well, to infection really. So they basically said, you know, you've got to isolate him. So he was at home with us and I took the week off work to make sure that we weren't bringing in any, any pathogens or anything like that. Um, and he recovers and everything's great and he goes back to school. And those first few nights after he'd had the operation, I couldn't get to sleep at all because for seven years, every night, I've been, we've been sleeping in our bedroom door open. For seven years, I've been able to hear him asleep because I could hear him breathing because his breathing was that ragged. They removed the adenoids and removed the tonsils and I had to get up and go into his room for about a week, every night for about a week, just to make sure that he was still breathing because I couldn't hear a sound. I mean, perhaps that's just something I never expected that my waking thoughts as well as my sleeping thoughts would be driven by somebody else's well-being. And yeah, it was... It was an interesting time, but it was a very, very sort of tough time as well. There's lots of things that you go through, but there's always the rewards. They're always there. It doesn't really stop. It never really stops there because my son's a lot older now, but there are different worries. You're literally just swapping one set of problems for another as the child grows. And that takes a lot of getting used to. It takes a lot of coming to terms with. And there's not a lot you can do around that. Sometimes you just have to grin and bear it. So, I'm Leon Deggs. And the reason cliches exist is because they're true. Thank you for listening.